I don't remember like everything sometimes when yes when I I don't want to remember como, like I I block my my brain my memories This is Mirna in 2011 when she was 12 years old she had been traveling for three years with her sister and her mom slowly making her way north from El Salvador to Nuevo Laredo Mexico Mirna's childhood was full of abuse physical, emotional, things that kids should never have to experience. Her parents got divorced when she was about seven years old and her mom went to work in the United States. Their dad pulled the kids out of school. His girlfriend was abusive. They kept Mirna's mom from seeing the kids unless she sent money. They used the kids as leverage. By the way, Mirna isn't her real name. She agreed to tell us her story but wanted a little privacy. After working in the States for a bit, their mom went back to get them, and together they made the journey to the U.S.-Mexico border. From Nuevo Laredo, their mom crossed the border to make some money first, and then go back to get her two girls. My mom said, okay guys, I'm going to send you the, the money for your food. And we said, okay. And we were watching that, that TV with my sister. Attention summer travelers, with fares as low as $15 and buses rolling 24 And we see a commercial when they say that tickets, if we buy the tickets from Laredo to San Antonio, it was the half, the half price, you know? And we would decide, oh, my mom is in San Antonio. <laughs> After seeing that commercial on TV advertising a bus ticket, Mirna thought this is the perfect idea. She and her sister made a plan using the money they had left for food. So we can go and see her, surprise her. And my sister said, yeah, we can buy the ticket and we can go. Like, yeah, it was easy. <laughs> they asked a the neighbor to buy the tickets for them. When Mirna and her sister boarded the bus, the driver asked if they had everything they needed. I have my backpack, like, I have my clothes, what else I need? And he said, okay, come on, and that's it. And he led us to cut in the bus. I think it was like, I think it was two hours. And then the stop, they, the, we see the, the checkpoint and one police go to the bus and he starts to say, I need to see everybody's documents. My sister and I was, we was confused. What documents, what we need? Like, we don't got nothing. Everybody was looking at us like, and they go to us and say, why are you two alone? And we say, we're going to see my mom. He said, okay, can I see your papers? And we was like, what papers? The Border Patrol agents handcuffed Mirna and her sister. They were 12 and 13 years old. I was thinking, oh my God, what I'm doing wrong? Like, what's going on? I don't know why we need this thing in our hands. We are not going to do anything. These are little kids, far away from their homes and their parents, just trying to figure out what's going on. They was mean. They don't give us food or drink. If we need to go to the restroom, we go, but with the hand cup in our hand and our 
feet. Like, we can barely walk. They spent three days in Customs and Border Patrol processing. Mostly what Mirna remembers is being hungry, starving. She had no idea what was happening. All they did was get on a bus to go see their mom. Why were they being treated like this? It was freezing in there. The air conditioner was permanently on and she didn't have a blanket. Mirna's sister held her so that they could keep warm. Like always, they looked out for one another and stuck together. They called my mom and say, do you know where your daughters are? And my mom was like, no, my daughters aren't in, in the house. <laughs> and they say, no, your daughters are not in your house. They're here in immigration detention. They told my mom, we're going to, to be deported. Yeah. <laughs> to El Salvador because we don't have papers. And my mom started crying. My colleague at Raices has spent a lot of time in detention centers, talking to young kids like Mirna. It's just as bad as they say. Mirna is a Raices client in a success story. She went on to get a green card, learn English, and graduated high school. But she and her sister are just one case. Since they arrived in 2011, there have been hundreds of thousands of unaccompanied minors just like them. Children who have been handcuffed, detained, families separated, and at least seven children have died while in ICE custody. This is Homeland Insecurity. So far in this series, we've been looking at how immigrants like me became the enemy. But the next four episodes will be about how we all became the enemy. I'm your host, Eric Andiola. This podcast explores the creation and consequences of the Department of Homeland Security, a new government agency that targets immigrants under the guise of national security by separating families and locking asylum seekers up. It created a powerful force that threatens our liberal democracy and the very soul of America. We've examined the structures that this country has built to keep immigrants out, and the lies we've told ourselves to justify violating civil liberties. As we've seen with federal agents showing up at the protests this summer, the Department of Homeland Security goes far beyond its original charge and puts the liberty of all Americans at risk, all under the pretense of catching terrorists. In the last episode, we saw how President Obama failed to deliver on the promises of hope and change early in his presidency by recruiting local police to help catch immigrants to be detained and deported. Under his direction, DHS expanded its powers and jailed thousands of immigrants. It was his legacy that set the stage for what was to come. So in this episode, we're going to look at another aspect of Obama's record on immigration. I'm talking about family detention. Obama built bigger and bigger jails to lock up families. His administration labeled moms and their children national security threats. And they claim it was necessary to treat these families horribly in order to deter more families from coming to the U.S. The concept being we are going to punish Group A to send a message to Group B. That's sending people off to the gallows before they have a chance to commit the crime. That's Jonathan Ryan, president and CEO of Raices. 
He's been working to help immigrants for 15 years. For me, the most shining example of Obama's turn from hope on the issue of immigration to us merely trying to hold back the jaws of hell from opening up and swallowing all of our clients was the summer of 2014. This was the beginning of a widespread persecution of immigrants that we see today. And we've been living in the shadows of that moment. We've been living in the fallout of that collapse of moral leadership on the part of a president who sold himself as nothing if not morality incarnate on this earth. And he failed in a big, big way right there. Why would a man who ran on hope and change, whose Yes We Can campaign inspire millions of progressives, a man who championed liberal values, why would he decide to lock up thousands of families? How did he get here? Whatever Obama had been or was promised to be, he is now not. When President Obama was new to the White House in 2009, he seemed like a beacon of hope. He tried to end the mass detention of families that President Bush had started. At first, it seemed like the Obama presidency was going to fix it. I saw things that should be done right away. This is Dr. Dora Shrivro, the founding director of the Office of Detention, Policy and Planning at ICE. Immigration and Customs Enforcement is the agency within DHS responsible for the identification, arrest, detention, and deportation of immigrants. It seems like a dreadful job, right? But Shriru actually went into it thinking she could use this job to help people. And she was particularly focused on reforming the detention centers that were locking up families. The impact, particularly on the children and their moms who were worried on their behalf, was palpable. Can you imagine women and children who have fled their countries because of gang violence and abject poverty and war to find themselves in a place like this with their children? It was especially harsh and especially punitive. There was no modification you could make to that facility to make it appropriate for families. In February 2009, she started her new role at DHS. She saw an opportunity to transform the system into something more humane for those inside. I hit the ground running. There was interest in the agency to explore doing things different, maybe even better. Shriru wanted to look closely at where immigrants ended up and how they were being treated. She began visiting ICE detention centers around the country. Many were rural. I used to joke that if it didn't take at least two transfers on a plane and a couple hours on a dirt road, you know, I wasn't really out in the field. They were just, you know, all over the place. Far away, hard to get to places were intentional. As we learned from the Bush administration in episode three, building detention centers far from cities was a tactic to escape scrutiny and a way to avoid the public eye and, of course, oversight. I hit 25 or more in the first number of months. The T. Dunhudo Family Detention Facility was one of them. It was just, it was a devastating place. Based on what she had seen, she recommended DHS close Hutto to families as soon as possible. It was met with support. You know, it happened quickly. By August of 2009, 
Less than eight months after Obama took office, most of the families being detained at HUD were released. Overall, national capacity for family detention, for locking up kids, was reduced to fewer than 100 beds at a facility in Pennsylvania. And that felt like a win. This was the moment, the small window of opportunity, right at the beginning of Obama's first term to close down family detention for good. But advocates and lawyers didn't quite manage to end the practice altogether. It was the existence of those 100 beds that paved the way for what was to come. DHS would completely reverse course from 100 beds to 3,500, all under the same precedent. My name is Sayani Rodriguez. I'm a case manager that provides social services in the children's program at Raices. As a social service provider, one of the biggest things that I try to work with my kiddos is for them to know that they have a right to an education here in the United States. I can tell you how many times kiddos have come to my office and have told me that their high school counselor, teacher, or a staff member has told them that they cannot go to college after high school graduation due to their undocumented status in the United States. So I go into schools and give presentations and I advocate for these students, for my students, and for all undocumented students who are in the pursuit of college. And I provide the staff with information and tools on how to decrease the barriers the youth face as undocumented students in the United States. Our work depends on you. Donate at homelandinsecuritypodcast.com. Throughout his presidency, Obama expressed that he wanted to pass some kind of sweeping immigration reform, some kind of policy aimed at giving people a chance to survive and thrive, even if they don't have documents. At the beginning, he said he wanted to make all of us legal residents. The 12 million or so undocumented workers are here uh, who are not paying taxes uh, in the ways that we'd like them to be paying taxes, who are living in the shadows that That is a group that we have to deal with in a practical, common-sense way. I think the American people are ready for us to do so. But he needed Congress to get on board. And after Republicans took the House of Representatives in 2010, the path to reform got even harder. Between 2010 and 2014, Obama struggled to get the Republican majority to pass anything, let alone immigration reform. Here's how Speaker John Boehner in 2014 sending a message to Obama about what it would take to get something done. Listen, there's widespread doubt uh, about whether this administration can be trusted to enforce our laws. And it's going to be difficult to move any immigration legislation until uh, that changes. Boehner wasn't being subtle. The Republicans were going to stonewall Obama on immigration reform until he showed that he would be tough on the southern border. And with a 2014 midterms looming, all eyes were on the president. But as the election approached, something totally unexpected happened. This is a problem. There is a crisis at the border. Small children crossing into the U.S., in many cases alone, without their parents, and then getting trapped in limbo. They came here illegally and on their own. A gigantic, unprecedented surge of minors. This is an incredibly dangerous situation, and it is unlikely that their children will be able to stay. And I've asked parents across Central America not to put their children in harm's way in this fashion. That spring, 
In 2014, tens of thousands of families and children traveling alone began fleeing Central America and headed north towards the United States. Overall, the number of border apprehensions was way down, the lowest I've seen since the early 70s. But the search in 2014 was unprecedented. Not because it dramatically increased how many people were coming, those numbers stayed relatively low, but because of who was crossing. About 70,000 were like Mirna and her sister, unaccompanied children, almost double the year before. In another, almost 70,000 were families, more than three times what Customs and Border Patrol agents had picked up in 2013. Most of these kids and parents came from El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala, commonly known as the Northern Triangle. Attorney Barbara Hines worked closely with families who were crossing the border in record numbers. People were fleeing for their safety, for their lives. Children, particularly adolescents, were at great risk of being recruited by the gangs if they were boys, being taken as sex slaves, the so-called girlfriends of gang members if they were girls. Families were being threatened if they didn't turn over their children. Businesses were being extorted. It was a very grave situation. Years of political instability and violence in their home countries had reached a fever pitch. So these kids and families turned to the United States for safety. It's important to note that U.S. interventions played a large role in destabilizing the Northern Triangle and causing the violence that people were fleeing. But that story is enough for a whole other podcast. The crisis at the southern border during the summer of 2014 could have been a great moment for Obama. A chance to show the world what he said he wanted for America, what he had promised to immigrants. That this country would treat refugees with dignity and respect for their rights, helping those fleeing violence find safety and security within our borders. And at first, that's how the administration responded. Here's Jay Johnson, who was the secretary of DHS in June 2014. This is a humanitarian issue as much as it is a matter of border security. We're talking about large numbers of children without their parents who have arrived at our border hungry, thirsty, exhausted, scared, and vulnerable. How we treat the children in particular is a reflection of our laws and our values. The government was totally unprepared, but their message seemed clear. They were going to do everything in their power to help the children. But as it turned out, there was a catch. Only some of the children qualified. Those who came alone would be taken care of. They would be processed in emergency shelters and released as quickly as possible. But the children who came with their parents, that's a different story altogether. Jonathan Ryan was at immigration court waiting for his turn. He was there representing an unaccompanied minor. I literally stepped out into the hallway to get a drink of water and I saw one of the ICE trial attorneys who I had known at that time for many years, walking down the hallway, carrying a stack of papers, of packets, all the way up to her chin. And I, I just stopped her and I said, what is that? What's that you're doing? And she actually said, I have no idea. Uh, it's just some packet that they told me to, to bring down to the courthouse. I don't know. And I was like, well, can I have one? She's like, yeah, sure, no problem. And so she just handed me a packet. And it was about a quarter to a half an inch thick. Jonathan went back into the courtroom and began flipping through the packet. It was a series of affidavits from senior DHS officials. Waves of realization and understanding just start hitting me as I look at these affidavits. It's the 
literally that experience of being like, what? 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 The documents were for ICE lawyers to help them argue that immigrant mothers and their children should be detained indefinitely. Women and children called threats to national security. You had these children in what they were calling shelters who were part of a humanitarian crisis. And now you had these children with their mothers who were held in ICE for-profit prisons who were threats to national security and needed to be detained with no bond. The same phenomenon, same population, fleeing the same violence from the same places, now were being talked about by our government in two completely different ways. It's a shocking distinction, that kind of ridiculous policy that Obama needed to seem tough on immigration. They couldn't crack down on kids because the American public would never go for that. So instead, they decided to be tough on the kids who came here with their mothers to scare away other kids and their mothers. Because if you let one of them out, then a thousand more would show up. So the affidavits read, thus causing ultimate chaos at our border and a collapse of security in our nation. That was the government's logic, deterrence, to send the message across the southern border. Don't try to come here with your kids. We don't know what happened or when exactly, but at some point, the Obama administration turned their backs on these families. They became hellbent on incarcerating immigrants for as long as possible. Here's Jay Johnson again at a press conference outside of a temporary facility in Artesia, New Mexico. If you come to this country illegally into the Rio Grande Valley sector, we intend to send you back consistent with our laws, and we are building additional capability to do that. The Department of Homeland Security kept raising the stakes. They started blanket denying bond to these mothers and their children. Or DHS would set the bond ridiculously high, as high as $25,000, basically guaranteeing that these families could not get out of detention. Attorney Barbara Hines started to drum up support from advocates and law firms. She created a program with Raices that offers pro bono legal services at Carnes Detention Facility. With help from some of her law students, they did the best they could to support the women and children jailed inside Carnes. If you checked in as a lawyer to Carnes to see a client, you were not able to leave and come back in later on. And remember, this is an isolated place, an hour from San Antonio, two and a half hours from Austin. You were not allowed to bring in any food or water. We were not able to allow clients that wanted to see the pro bono project to sign up voluntarily. They had to call a hotline. There were just so many impediments to accessing the families there. And we ended up spending, you know, so much time on these silly things that when you could have been spending time representing more families. In immigration court, you're not guaranteed a lawyer. But statistically, immigrants who have a lawyer are five times more likely to win their cases. But every time Heinz and her team came up against a roadblock, more and more people ended up without lawyers, trapped inside for longer. The thing that sticks out in my mind is that President Obama began family detention again. And he began it really with a vengeance in the sense that even though families weren't in cells with barbed wire, 
his administration took the position that families should not be able to get out under any circumstances. It seems like such a cruel thing to do. What was the logic behind locking up these families? Was it really supposed to be a way to deter more families from trying to cross the border? Why did they make it so hard for lawyers to help them? And why did they go to such strange lengths to make sure these families couldn't get out? In the fall of 2014 through 2015, there were uh, families that had been there for three months, four months, five months. Attorney Barbara Hines remembers winning bond for one client from El Salvador. Afterward, she and her colleague went to pick them up from Carnes. And the first thing they said to us was, could we stop and get some water? Because the water was not drinkable there. And then we began the stories that they told us about the conditions, inedible food, weight loss by the children, inadequate medical care, and things of that sort. It was pretty obvious. Detention centers like Carnes weren't safe places for adults, let alone children. Her immigration clinic began to monitor the conditions at Carnes. And what they found was deeply troubling. Regression, children who were bedwetting, children who were potty trained. These were children who had seen quite a bit of trauma in their own country. And then to be stuck in this facility exacerbated whatever experiences they had had before. The list of concerns was long. When the first cold front came in, there were no coats and caps and families were calling us. There was a client in the fall who had a prescription for uh, her cancer treatment that was taken away from her. Her medicine was taken away from her and there were reports of sexual abuse as well. Instead of allowing families to wait in the country with some dignity, they've chosen to lock them up in large prison-like facilities. And despite all this, in November 2014, President Obama made an infamous immigration speech. Felons, not families. Criminals, not children. Gang members, not a mom who's working hard to provide for her kids. We'll prioritize, just like law enforcement does every day. I remember that speech because it was a lie. A month later, he opened the largest detention center in the country in Dealey, Texas. Dora Shreedro remembers visiting Dealey for the first time. Oh my gosh, it was so big. So many beds got added so quickly. Dealey added 2,400 private prison beds specifically for families, not felons. I mean, my gosh, we went from 84 to, I think, 3,300 <laughs> in six months' time. The expansion cost more than a billion dollars. Yes, that's a billion with a B. We got deep into the for-profit prison industry in episode three and how their budgets ballooned by imprisoned immigrants under President George W. Bush. But that trend continued under Obama. Government spending on for-profit prisons like GEO and CCA grew from $789 million per year in 2012 to $2 billion per year in 2016. By the end of the Obama administration, they almost doubled what they were paying to private contractors to detain and deport immigrants. Wall Street knew what was coming. They had paid attention during the for-profit prison boom under Bush. And after the border crisis in 2014, they invested in private detention facilities. It's no wonder stock prices for Geo Group and CCA spiked that summer. ICE's 
their customer. So unlike the public sector, where the constituency is the population that's being housed, you know, those are the, the ones to whom some obligation is owed, you have a very different dynamic. If ICE is pleased with their performance, that's it, which is kind of an oxymoron because ICE is still, you know, the government serving the public. I don't know how President Obama justified it all to himself, throwing families in jail and detaining them indefinitely. But reflecting on the moment in time, he knew he had a small window of opportunity to pass a comprehensive immigration bill. Midterm elections were coming up in the fall. And if he lost, he would lose the ability to negotiate with Republicans. So the Obama administration drew a line in the sand. And to draw that line, they relied on a troubling narrative that we in the immigrant rights movement call good immigrant versus bad immigrant. On one side were the so-called good immigrants, the few people they wanted to help get into the country. On the other were the bad immigrants who didn't deserve to stay a group defined by constantly changing political whims in D.C. I think the Obama administration thought that this was how they were going to get Republicans to the table and pass reform, to help the good immigrants by treating families as the bad immigrants. Obama was playing a game of poker with the lives of immigrants. Republicans paint the Senate red, like two-term presidents Reagan, Clinton, and George W. Bush before him. Obama will spend his final two years facing an opposing party controlling both chambers of Congress. Obama lost big. And with that defeat, he lost all hope of a sweeping immigration bill. In the 2014 midterm elections, Republicans added 13 new seats to the majority in the House and won the Senate for the first time since 2006. Immigration reform didn't have a chance. Instead, the immigration enforcement machine kept getting bigger, and more and more people were considered bad immigrants by our legal system. Over the years, efforts to enforce the border and look tough on immigration were extreme like putting protesting mothers and their kids in isolation. Things went from extreme to completely absurd. Believe it or not, I'm talking about crayons. Crayons played a special role for attorneys at Carnes. It's hard to ask mothers about what happened to them in their home countries, about why they fled in front of their children. We had coloring books so the kids could color on the tables and hope that the child was distracted while we were interviewing them. And then the next thing that Raices learned was that no crayons could be in the visitation room. A for-profit immigrant family detention center in Carnes County, Texas, has banned migrant children held there from having access to crayons while their mothers meet with lawyers. U.S. immigration officials banned crayons from the visitors' area. Immigration authorities claim the ban is a response to children coloring on a table in the prison's visiting area, which, quote, caused damage to the contractor. We never got the crayons back. All we got was a chalkboard. Of course, there was never any chalk. Barbara Hines can't get over the pettiness of it all. A government agency with virtually unlimited resources and authority, and the people they decide to target are toddlers. This is such a clear example of the Department of Homeland Security using its unlimited powers to go after the most vulnerable people. Sure, it's just crayons, but it's a show of strength. The state is sending a message that they are in control and can do what they want, 
unchecked. My name is Christian Sanchez. I'm a staff attorney for Raices at the San Antonio office. Right now, I'm representing a group of transgender women who are detained at Pearsall, and they are fighting their asylum claims. These women are the most vulnerable clients that we have who are suffering a lot of abuse and violence in their home countries. They come from places where transgender women can just be killed in the street and nothing happens and nobody cares. We've been able to win over 15 asylum cases for these women and that allows them to build a life in a way that they've never been able to before. Our work depends on you. Visit homelandinsecuritypodcast.com. After many months of legal challenges to the blanket no-bond policy, the moms held at Carnes got a win. A judge in D.C. ruled it unconstitutional. Holding some people in custody to deter others from coming to the U.S. was, simply put, illegal. Only persons who are guilty of crimes can be punished. The court said specifically about deterrence is that the government cannot use it as rationale for detaining families. The Obama administration appealed the decision, but eventually gave in and began issuing bonds again. In August 2015, a judge in California ruled that families arriving at the border should receive the same treatment as unaccompanied children, that they should be released within 20 days or less. Dora Shreerose says that should have changed everything, but it didn't. Because government doesn't comply with the court on a pretty regular basis. <laughs> it, it's, that's really an outrage that a judicial ruling absent some counterman by the Supreme Court, would continue to be disobeyed. And the, the direction from the court has been, you know, pretty darn consistent over the years. In October of 2016, a Department of Homeland Security Advisory Committee recommended ending family detention in all but a few exceptional cases. Dora Shiro was on that committee. DHS and ICE accepted none of our recommendations, and they did so without comment. This is when the government gets dangerous. We have checks and balances, oversight and advisory committees for a reason. When a government body decides to ignore and brazenly go against the limits that have been placed upon it, that is when democracy hangs in the balance. Who will enforce the enforcer? The Department of Homeland Security has been given too much power. And when an advisory committee told them to rein it in, DHS defied every order. And the most vulnerable people, mothers and children fleeing violence in their home countries, are suffering because of this abuse of power. If my family had entered in 2014 instead of 1998, I don't know how we would have handled it. Seeing my two-year-old little brother stuck in a detention facility for months, I can't even imagine just how much it would have affected us. All those years fighting over bonds and conditions and crayons, and in reality, the administration could have just let these asylum seekers out. Instead, we spent billions of dollars locking them up, traumatizing tens of thousands of children, none of whom are actually national security threats. When you look back at the eight years Obama was in office, from expanding ICE in his first term and recruiting police departments to help detain immigrants nationwide, to bringing family detention back with a vengeance in his second term, 
Obama's attempts to win over a Republican Congress failed miserably. And in the process, they led to massive human rights violations against families, against children. By the end of 2016, everything was really bad for immigrants like me and my family. And that was under a president who at least talked like he wanted to help us. Very few people predicted that when it came time for Obama to pass over the keys to the White House, he'll be giving them to Trump. Jonathan Ryan again. When Donald Trump arrives at the White House, what he opens up is an array of tools at the ready to incarcerate, to round up, to detain and deport all manner of individuals. And so what Donald Trump only had to do was pick up this bag of tricks and run with it. And run, he did. The president promised the nationwide raids were coming. Donald Trump has banned people from seven Muslim-majority countries from entering Mr. the United Trump States. Mr. Trump was referring to African nations and Haiti. Why do we want these people from, quote, all these shithole countries? At least 24 immigrants have died in the custody of Immigration and Customs Enforcement under the Trump administration. At least this four country more. is now systematically taking children from their parents at the border, thanks to new directives issued by the Trump administration. Knowing that a man who spoke about immigrants like me in this way was about to inherit this massive deportation and detention system was scary enough. What he would actually choose to do with it was more terrifying than I've ever imagined. If you are smuggling a child, then we will prosecute you. And that child may be separated from you. I told my daughter to forgive me because I didn't want to leave you. It wasn't me who left you. Families separated at the border. That's next time on Homeland Insecurity. Homeland Insecurity is a Raices production. Produced by Alexandra Garreton and executive produced by Sarah Barrett, Jonathan Ryan, and Brian Carmel. With production help from Carmen Graterol, Aldonza Contreras, and Natasha Pizzi. I'm your host, Eric Andiola. On November 3rd, those of you who can't vote get to elect our next president. I wish I could, but as an undocumented person, I can't vote. If you're moved by what you've learned, remember, your vote can make an impact in the name of migrant justice. Go to homelandinsecuritypodcast.com to learn more. And one more thing. We're getting a lot of really disturbing comments on Apple and other platforms. Stuff like, you're here illegally. When you read these, you can tell it's from people who didn't even listen to the podcast. They just want to attack me because I'm an immigrant. The best way to help us fight these kinds of attacks is to rate the podcast and leave a review. If you listen this far, we absolutely want to hear from you.